Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is Thea Carlson, the California-based environmental activist and self-described earth steward, who's on a mission to use biodynamic farming to regenerate the planet. In her work, Thea looks for solutions that will not only combat and reverse climate change, but also foster a better and more sustainable way of living for generations to come. But this is also a story about a focus on the future, addressing humanity's past impact. As a trustee of the charity, DIRT, the foundation for the regeneration of Earth, Thea believes that it is the role of business to pay reparations to the planet and address past harms. Thea, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you so much. I'm lovely to be here. Oh, I've so enjoyed reading your story. I'm so looking forward to sharing it with, with our listeners because, you know, you've got such a, a commitment to the planet. You've got such a great story in terms of what you're doing about it from Northern Cal- California, where we pick up the story of the Earth Steward. So tell us a little bit about what an Earth Steward actually is. <laughs> well, I'm finding out all the time. It's not, it's a sort of a recent name that I've given my role in the world. Uh, for a long time, I was a farmer and gardener and facilitator, and I'm still all those things. But I think with the climate crisis around us, it's really important to me to look beyond growing food. Growing food is so Mm. important. And there's also an entire climate to steward and forests and so many natural ecosystems. So Mm. I think for me growing up, I always had a real care for the earth. And this is a way to embrace a broader perspective on the work that I'm doing. Well, we'll get into that in a moment. But in terms of just bringing, you know, the day job to life in terms of your work in Northern Sonoma, tell us a little bit about actually where you're doing the stewarding, where you're doing the farming, this sort of like, I guess, where it all starts day by day. Yeah. So I live um, on land in the mountains between the Sonoma Valley and the Napa Valley, north of San Francisco. And I co-own 414 acres of land. And so I've lived here for the past six years. And that is my home base. That's where I go out every morning. Uh, I Before coming to the interview, I let the chickens out of the coop and let the goats out of their stalls. And I yeah, so I do have those kind of traditional farming aspects, but most of the land is forest. So uh, what I've been moving into is also stewarding the forests uh, all over the land together with the other people who own the land. Mm. Do, do you get a sense that COVID and the pandemic and living through it has reawakened a kind of connection with nature and the natural world? I mean, is, is do, do, you, do you pick up the fact that actually you're right on trend? <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I was I was already living out in the country. I know a lot of people have moved to the country since COVID, but I was traveling, you know, at least once a month for many years until COVID. And so, and you know, all the way from when I first moved here. So it, it, when we had the shutdown, it was the first time I'd really spent a whole year here without being gone a week out of every month. And so for me personally, there was a deeper attention to the rhythms of nature. And I think that's that's true for a lot of people who were, you know, needed to stay in one place for a year or longer uh, to really see what was going on around them with the earth. I mean, I mean, that's a lovely phrase, the, the, the rhythms of nature. I mean, when you think about the planet, we are obviously speaking in the run up to the UK hosting COP26. How in tune is the rhythm of the planet right now, do you think? I think there's a lot of imbalances that the planet is trying its best to balance um, in ways that are challenging for us humans, you know, with all the extreme weather and the wildfires that we have here. So I think the the planet is out of balance and trying to create balance because that's what it's always trying to do. But 
a lot of what we're doing as humans is pushing it out of balance rather than bringing it into balance. Mm. I mean, where you live was right in the, I guess the the eye of the storm of, of of one of the one of the greatest wildfires of of living memory. I mean, give us a sense of that experience and. I guess it didn't necessarily lead to the outcomes that you might have supposed, did it, in terms of your views of the role of of fire and nature? Yeah, I mean, I I moved here in 2015, and a month after I moved here, there was a wildfire just 40 miles north of us. So the whole time that I've lived in these mountains, although I grew up in California, I spent quite a bit of time in the Midwest. And so ever since I came back, there was this specter of wildfire, and we were evacuated multiple times, had many fires that were nearby. And then last year in September, we had a wildfire that burned through the entire property, burned all of my neighbor's homes and everything except for my house and our community building and our shop and solar array. So it really was an extreme <laughs> expression of the element of fire. And I, you know, I didn't know beforehand if I'd want to stay living here if a wildfire came. And it, for me, it was always a matter of when, not if, mm-hmm. because we knew it was coming. And after the fire, it was just so clear to me that this, I need to stay on this land and move towards fire rather than running away from it. So Mm. a lot of the past year, I've really been learning everything I can about prescribed fire and indigenous cultural burning and, and recognizing that fire is so necessary for this landscape and many other landscapes. And it's been excluded. And that's a big reason why we're having these wildfires is because we haven't had the healthy fire. And, and I was re- the healthy fire. I mean, I was re- I mean, I'm, I'm sure people will listen to that and go, what does that mean? Because you know, <laughs> one of the things that you've, you, you've, you've talked about is understanding how we can partner with fire to bring health to the landscapes and safety to ourselves. I mean, is this is this the fact that we have to realise as people that there are limitations to what we can do and we have to get used to this? Or actually, is it more that actually there's a utility here? There is actually a purpose to things like like, like wildfires. No, it's, it's, it's really integral to the health of the landscapes in California and many other parts of the world. All the plants here evolved with fire with indigenous people for many thousands of years intentionally setting fires every year so when we don't have fire which has been the case basically for the past 150 years since europeans <laughs> took over california and, and the rest of the united states and there was this ethic of all fire is bad and one of the things that i've been learning is actually even in europe there were fire adapted ecosystems but because there was so much deforestation there wasn't a sense of that natural rhythm anymore. And those natural rhythms were still happening when settlers got here, but they just saw it as so many aspects of indigenous culture as backwards and wrong. And so they said, no, we're not going to have any more fire. All fire is bad. Smokey the bear is, is a big character here in the US of just this idea that all fire is bad. And the most heroic thing you can do is put out all fire. Well, I, I want to I come back to in your relationship with indigenous cultures. And, and you know, because it, it's a really you know interesting read from an outsider to understand it a little bit more but I suppose just before we we get into that is kind of wildfires up you know and we've seen them in Australia Greece Canada more these extreme weather events that um, are happening right the way around the world I mean 
I suppose a lot of people say, well, we can make changes and we can go back to something, you know, a more settled environment. I mean, is is that your take or do you think that actually this kind of planetary change is something we're going to have to find a new rhythm with, is that that it's here, it's happening? I mean, or, or do you get a sense that we can we can actually do things that might make a difference? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, the, the latest IPCC report was pretty sobering and I think there is a certain degree to which we're past the point of returning to how things used to be. But I also think that we can work to bring a new balance to the climate and ecosystems. And so we're not going to go back to how things were before, but I also don't think that it's inevitable that everything will escalate out of control until the planet is uninhabitable. I really think there is a lot that we can do. And that's something that is every day I wake up and think about what can I do to bring the earth into balance, uh, Mm. both for humans and everything else that's living on this planet. And I suppose the issue of a world imbalance is is also what biodynamic farming is is very much about. Introduce that to us as a style of agriculture, a style of land management in a way that I guess differs from the status quo and what we might understand. What, what, what should listeners take from it? Yeah, absolutely. The core concept in biodynamics is that a farm or a garden is a living organism and actually the whole entire earth is a living organism too. So it's really taking us out of this objectified like a farm as a factory to produce food mm-hmm. and thinking about it more as a living, intelligent organism that we're partnering with and we're helping to bring into health and vitality. So in biodynamics, we're really looking at those rhythms of nature and seeing how much we can work with those rhythms rather than against them. It's about building health and vitality in the soil, which then feeds healthy plants and healthy animals and healthy people. And one of the things that I find most exciting about biodynamics, there's a really strong emphasis on compost. Uh, as well as using biodynamic herbal preparations. And there's some really wonderful research showing that using compost in general and biodynamic compost in specific helps bring more carbon into the living realm. And so it's actually a tangible way to take the excess carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into healthy soil and grow food from it. So the act of making compost is uh, something that every single person can do uh, to bring balance to the climate. And see, I'm, I'm, I'm reading some of the things you've, you've spoken about on biodynamic farming, holistic, ecological, ethical. It it strikes me that there is a a curious combination of the scientist and the spiritualist in in youth here in terms of the way that that you approach this. I was reading your biggest inspiration is Rowan White, a member of the Mohawk community and a founder of Sierra Seeds. Tell us, let's try and dig into this a bit in terms of trying to understand, I guess, what makes you tick and how how you approach this as I suppose, you know, one level rationalist and one level spiritualist. Yeah, it's something that of course has taken a while to embrace. I, I studied science in college and was initially kind of skeptical of biodynamics because it does have a spiritual dimension as well. And one of the things I find fascinating is there's so many more people who are kind of finding that intersection between the two. I was just listening to an interview with Suzanne Simard, who talks about the communication between trees and not to say that's entirely spiritual work, but I think there is a way in which we need to be sensing into the greater connections between things and not just breaking everything down into little pieces. And even when I was in college and doing plant ecology field research and we're measuring the area of the leaves. And, you know, I remember having these debates with the grad students. 
student I was helping, it was like, if we just break down this tree into tiny pieces and then like put it back together, that's not going to give you a whole tree. So there's always been this sense of there is something greater out there. And I've never been dogmatic about it, but I think that listening to the land and listening to the earth is something that we actually can train ourselves to do. And it's both scientific and spiritual in a way. Mm. Tell us a little bit about also the influence of indigenous cultures on, on, on your thinking. Cause I mean, that, that is, I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier about the sort of, I, I guess the effect of European settlers and I, and I could see, you know, how you were, your facial expressions as you were talking about it, that, you know, that this is something that, that runs deep, how you feel about this. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that I grew up with a respect for the indigenous people here, but not a, a real way to connect with the indigenous wisdom that still exists. And I, I think the narrative that we're given in the United States is kind of like, well, you know, the Indians aren't here anymore. You know, they all died and that was sad. And, but now we have <laughs> this different culture and that's just not true. I mean, there are so many indigenous people, many of them live in cities, but there is this beautiful ancestral wisdom that has been passed down and is carried on. And one of the things that has been most exciting to me over the past year is beginning to develop a relationship with the Wapo people whose land we are on here and really looking at, I mean, it's, it's tentative, it's hard because, you know, the people I and other people who live here are the descendants of people who, you know, inflicted harm on indigenous people, maybe not these specific indigenous people, but that's part of the history of where we are as descendants of settlers. And it's just really beautiful to acknowledge all that harm and also look at how can we support each other? How can we be in a mutually beneficial relationship? And so that is something that's beginning to emerge here with the local indigenous community. And what do they say to you there? What, how does the conversation work? I mean, is it a forum? How did, what it gives a sense of actually, I guess, that narrative in terms of what, what actually happens? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's for every person, it's probably a different journey. Um, you know, so many of us, not just in the United States, are living on colonized indigenous land and in different ways, there might be more or less of that culture intact. But for us here on this land, there there's a leader in the WAPO community who's a both a scientist and a spiritual leader. And we went and walked with him on land where he's an educator, which is in these same mountains, and then invited him to come walk with us. And, you know, it was just kind of like getting to know the land and walking this land together, which is the ancestral land of his people. And we've had some more conversations since then. We're, you know, looking at having them uh, harvest culturally significant crops, such as um, there's a hazelnut bush, which after it's burned, which it just did in the wildfire, it's great for making baskets with, but they're mm. traditional Indian baskets. And so we're keeping an eye on this hazel for the moment when he's told us it's right to harvest so we can let him know and he can come harvest so that he and his children and grandchildren can make baskets out of that. So that's just something that makes us so excited and, and his family is so excited. And it, it feels like, you know, it's, I'm sure there will be missteps, but it's really wonderful to, to be bringing that connection back. Now, I know that a fellow collaborator is one of my past guests, Arizona Muse, who has just set up a, a, a charity, Dirt, the Foundation for the Regeneration of Earth, and you're a trustee. I mean, obviously, Arizona approaches life through the metaphor of her experience in, in fashion. Do you get a sense that what's happening in the world now is 
a number of people that felt like outliers in lots of different places suddenly get a sense that they are a movement for change in the world, that there is a a positivity and a connectivity that has suddenly happened quite recently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, what I know of Arizona's story is, is kind of, we met a few years ago through the Biodynamic Association. And yeah, it's in, and I think there's some similarities in that you, you think, oh, I have to put myself in this box or this box. So she's like, I'm a fashion model, you know, can I be an activist too? Oh, I guess I could be an activist too. And, and same for me. And, you know, I was an executive director of a organization is like, oh, well, I could actually go out and start doing prescribed fire. And so, yeah, I think there's a way in which we're able to get out of the boxes that we put ourselves in and and start to really see I, and I think COVID has really kind of put a spotlight on that for so many people. Like, mm-hmm. okay, we're in the midst of this pandemic. Who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> Things are not going back to normal. So what do I really want to do with my life? What's important to me? And um, how do I want to contribute to the world? And that's really exciting. But I suppose, you know, we, we see the stories of brands like Patagonia and, and others that are, are doing things differently. But then... We also have, I mean, you talked about being, you know, getting outside of boxes, but there is a world that lives firmly within boxes, and that is often mm-hmm. government. Yeah. And here we have the Intergovernmental Conference on, on Climate Change, COP26. Is there a message? I mean, is there something that I, I guess these more formal power structures can can learn here? Or are they always going to see activists like you in Arizona as well? It's niche, it's fine, but it's not, you can't, you know, you can't do things of the industrial proportions that a planet of billions needs. I mean, is there, is there a riposte to that? Is there a message that I guess these organized power structures need to take when they, when they observe the sort of work that you do? Yeah, I think absolutely this is relevant to government. And, and there are so many ways that government has done things that are based on outdated concepts. Um, you know, you talk about like, there's so much that's based on, for instance, Newtonian physics, even though a lot of that has been disproved for a long time. And so I think it's really, there's this conventional wisdom about what works and what's effective, and it's really not effective. And that's why our systems are crumbling. And that's why we have such terrible effects from this pandemic is because things aren't structured the way that life actually works. They're structured from a limited worldview. And so I think the more the decision makers in government can expand the ways that they look at the world and think about things, they can come up with more innovative solutions that are going to work better ecologically and economically and for human health. But I suppose in the world of ecology, I mean, a lot of these people are presumably people that you would see as highly culpable for for damage to, to the planet in terms of, you know, however intentional or otherwise, but nevertheless, the consequences are, I mean, but presumably they've also got to be part of the solution, have they? I mean, in terms of where where we go, um, do you get a sense that they might be listening, or 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 do you feel that there's still just enormous sort of distances to travel here? I think they are listening. I mean, I I do have a, a deep belief that everyone wants to do the right thing. I think some people are just you know stuck in a worldview that doesn't allow them to do it, and I think that all of us have a part to play. You know, I I remember. I was, you know, big in organizing for Obama to be elected here in the U.S. And, you know, I remember he was saying, you know, I might want to do something, but I need you to show 
show up and call and email and show up to, you know, different, you know, rallies to express like, this is the will of the people and not just something I want to do. And so I think there's probably a lot of decision makers who really do want to do the things that we're talking about, uh, Mm. but they need more expression of public support to feel like they have the backing to do them. So I think in addition to those specific decision makers, I think it's up to all of us um, to really express what we see as the solutions um, so we can get behind those decision makers and in stepping outside of what are the conventional ways that they might act. Let's go back, Thea. Let's go back to you growing up in terms of what gets you to this highly developed activist and thinking now what I read was that you grew up on very very healthy food I mean that was a starting point in terms of there was a hinterland a backstory to this in terms of some of your early experiences tell tell us a little bit about that I was raised by a single mother who really despite some economic challenges she felt that being outdoors and eating good food were the most fundamental things she could give her children she grew up her high school years in these same mountains where I live now and so she has had a long-standing really deep connection to the earth and a sense of responsibility for both feeding her family healthy food, but also the impact of on the environment of the food choices. So we spent a lot of time outside. She homeschooled us for our early years. And so, you know, she called it earth school. So we were just outside (laughs) as much as possible. We we live close to the oceans. We spent a lot of time at the beach and you were growing food, right? You were, you were growing food and vegetables and flowers. Yeah, a little bit. We didn't, we didn't grow a, a lot of food, but most of, mostly we, we supported local organic farmers in the early organic farming movement in California. Yeah, gardening was something that I didn't really get into until I was in college. Um, and I, I kind of coached my mom into how to grow food because it was something that she didn't really have a, a good intuition for initially. But we started gardening together once I was in college. So, you know, we would plant things, um, but a lot of times they would die because it was, you know, we were busy. And But there was a sense of connection with nature, even if we weren't growing as much of our own food as we wanted to. But, but there was a, a very significant life uh, light bulb moment for you in traveling to the Brazilian Amazon um, in terms of, I, I guess, that studying abroad having a major impact on you. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I went to study Amazonian ecology and natural resource management. And, and going into college, I really wanted to study um, environmental science. And I was more in the conservation side of things. And And so I was, you know, save the rainforest. Let me go to the Amazon and see what's going on. And and so as I was there for for four months and there were just, we looked at logging and mining and um, hydroelectric jams. And I I really recognize that so much of the deforestation, the Amazon is becoming, happening because of food, um, because there's, there's this demand for food and it's not being grown in a sustainable way. And it's important to recognize the slash and burn agriculture culture of the indigenous people of the Amazon was healthy and sustainable because they would slash and burn only a small area and then let it regenerate from the forest around it probably 20 years before they come back to it. But with modern kind of land tenure and the Brazilian government's kind of putting a whole bunch of more people in the Amazon, those rotations got shorter and shorter. And so they're just depleting the soil um, to the point that it couldn't really sustain very much life. And so that's encroaching on the Amazon. And so So 
being there and, and also connecting with the Landless Rural Workers Movement, MST, there was a real yeah light bulb moment for me, as you said, about the connection between food and agriculture and human health and human rights and the health of the planet. And I really just recognize, okay, if we can grow food in a way that actually nurtures the earth rather than depletes the earth, so many of our problems can be solved. Mm-hmm. And that really set me on my passion for agriculture. And, and I suppose that if a big food manufacturer farmer was listening to this, they'd say, well, that's fine. And I get that, but you can't do the sort of stuff we need to do at scale or for the prices. And that this makes it quite a, quite a privileged niche type experience. I mean, do you get a sense that there is, that you can have both the purpose, but you can also do this in a, in a way that everybody can afford in a way that actually can feed the planet without destroying it at the same time. Yeah, I mean, there are very large biodynamic farms and regenerative farms that are growing food at scale and and using these principles in a way that that is actually building the health of the soil and the earth rather than depleting it. I think there are a lot of skewed ways that our economy is that, that don't support that and that need to be changed. For example, some of the crop subsidies we have in the United States. And just the fact that we don't really take into the cost that, you know, what's called externalities. If you completely <laughs> destroy a watershed, there's a lot of costs that's going to be in trucking water in or cleaning that water. And so those are costs that, that are actually economic costs that come later. And so it's like, how do we count those in? Um, mm. So we're thinking about the true cost of food. And especially in the US, I think it's a little bit different in Europe, but people have become accustomed to cheap food. So what food you can afford versus like what, you know, level of cable TV you can afford (laughs) has been really skewed, you know? So I do think that it's important that people who have the economic means are willing to spend more money on food Mm. and that there is appropriate support for people who don't have the economic means to access that healthy food. And and I think alongside the economic means is also, I guess, the cultural means. Because I was thinking about this, you know, like, you know, obviously I, I can see you and listeners can't, but, you know, when I used to go on farm trips at school, we would meet you know kind of older people in farming and they were not necessarily the most interesting days out most of the kids wanted to leave the farm. I mean we, we never meet, met people like you Theo you know I mean the, the, it, feel, it feels like you're part of a a global cultural change I guess in terms of the, the, the land can be something much more accessible I, I, I guess in terms of people's day-to-day experiences do, do you see yourself as part of that cultural change as well in terms of not just being a practitioner of change. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, I, one of the things Arizona said a few months ago is it's time to make soil sexy, you know? So <laughs> I think there is definitely this sense of this is something that is, yeah, has been like, oh, that's a boring thing. And it's so exciting. I mean, it's fascinating. Like if you actually start learning about what happens in a beehive, like everyone I talk to about that is just like wants to know more. Like there are all these conceptions about bees that are completely wrong. And we can learn so much about how we structure society from how bees structure their um, hives. And, and I think kids have an in, inherent interest in nature. One of my early career things was doing school garden programs and, um, and, and even eating vegetables. I mean, there's this, this concept that, that we have that kids don't like vegetables. And I remember one time I just took red cabbage, put some salt and lemon juice on it and brought it out to the playground. And the kids were just loving Loving it. it. They just Mm. were like, Oh, I want more, you know? So I think there's so much, if we, if we just give people opportunities to really 
um, express their curiosity. I mean, I don't know what your farm visits were like as a kid, but maybe they didn't let you actually get well, your hands. Well, they, they were like, <laughs> no, they were they were quite sanitized experiences. They weren't that where you could yeah. see the colors, play with things. It was more about yeah. actually, you know. I guess a very traditional model of a farm rather yep. than, you know, young creative kids that do want to taste things, touch things. And I, and yep. I guess that's part of the, the, the cultural mix now. Now you've given us um, a wonderful tip for life and a wonderful quote for life. I want to go through both of those as my, my last two questions with you there, but your tip for life, I don't know if you remember, I'll, I'll read it out for you so you can, you can um, pick up the story for us, but more than the big events, it's the everyday moments that matter. Practice being present, here and now pick that up for us in terms of a a a message for for people listening yeah I think you know especially with the pandemic so many people are are terrified about the future you know and I think that that it's so important in terms of you know how the quality of our lives but also the quality of how we contribute um, to really be present and not to be hedonistic about it but just to really be aware of like, what am I doing right now? How am I relating to other people? How am I relating to myself and to life? And I think one of the um, modes uh, I've been doing meditation for probably over 20 years now, Mm. and it's something that allows me, I think, to have greater capacity to respond um, to whatever comes my way, because when things are unpredictable, uh, we really need to be able to be present and and sense and respond and do things in a wise manner. And you know, I you know, there are many big moments that are really important to me that I loved, and and not to say those aren't important, but there's so many more everyday moments. And I think a lot of times we can kind of be like, well, I'll be happy when this happens, or I'll be happy when this happens, and we the actually next, have the next the big thing. Yeah, and and really it's like how, you know, that there's plenty of research out there that says, okay, you know, you get the nice car and you're happy for like two hours and then you're back to where you were before. Mm. And so it's that daily um, hourly practice of being present that allows us to fully experience our life. And I guess, you know, there's, there's nothing more present than nature and working within nature, but presumably it's also a balance between extremely stressful things because of the nature of you know, working where you're you're growing plants, rearing animals, whatever it might be, trying to respect natural traditions. And also one of the most fulfilling things you can ever do. I mean, you started this interview, this wonderful picture of, you know, the the chickens and and the goats uh, and that world. Is Is there a balance where you ever think this is really hard? A lot of people will say that. Or is it always something where you just think this is where, if you're looking for presenteeism, this is where you find it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to be present with what's difficult also, because we're, nobody's going to live a life that doesn't have difficulty. And so I think part of it is how, how we relate to what's really challenging. I mean, yes, it's been immensely difficult and, you know, waking up every morning and seeing burned trees all around me for, you know, all this time since the fire, it's really, you know, it is challenging. It's, it's heartbreaking every day, but there's also so much that's growing up and, you know, seeing, native medicinal plants that weren't present here before that the seeds were just waiting in the seed bank in the soil for decades and now they're flourishing uh, I think it's really a lot of it is what you pay attention to I'm wonderful and and you you gave us your, your quote for life love and justice are not two without inner change there can be no outer change without collective change 
no change matters. Tell us a little bit about the author of of, of that quote and, and what it means to you. Yeah, so that's from Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who's a Zen master and um, amazing teacher. Who's really, you know, one of the things as a white-bodied person for me that that has been part of my journey for the past five or six years, especially. I always cared about social justice, but there was really kind of an awakening to me in, in terms of how important my role in justice is. And Angel Kyoto Williams has, again, brought, like we were talking about the kind of bridging um, science and spirituality. She's really bridging justice and spirituality and not um, taking meditation, which often can be seen as this like escape from reality and this way to kind of transcend and and really turn that around to, to talk about radical dharma, to talk mm-hmm. about how we use our, our spiritual practice to bring more justice about in the world and to not think of justice as a fight necessarily, but something that we do out of love for ourselves and for humanity. Yeah, so I really, that, I really took something out of that. I think we often are conditioned to think of justice as a fight. You know, you fight for rights, you fight for things. But I love this idea about inner change and, and, and collective change. I mean, it's a it's, it, you know, at, at a time where we possibly need things which are possibly more gentle to think about and more possible, I guess, in terms of how we affect change, it really matters. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that so much of why injustice persists is because we've internalized um, the oppression within ourselves, no matter what our social location is, what our race is, what our gender is, those systems of oppression are oppressing us, you know, we're participating in that. And so if we start to recognize through being present, oh, this is a way that I have a microcosm of the outer system within me and start to dismantle that, then that also shifts how we relate to other people and ultimately the structures of our society. I think that's a very uplifting point to thank you very much for joining me on Changemakers. Oh, thank you so much. It's been really fun to talk with you. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? Just be